0: Before we get into our study this morning, let's have a a season of prayer together, and so I invite you to uh, bow your heads and your hearts with me uh, as we seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for your uh, undying love towards us, um, that you are merciful towards us, that you love us so much that to deal with the sin issue, you didn't just wipe us out. You... You gave up your only son, and you let him take that risk of coming here. And you took a risk in sending him to become like one of us, uh, to show that the devil's claims are untrue, that one can be an obeyer of the truth, an obeyer of the law, and be happy, and be fulfilled, and not miserable. And so, we thank You so much for that love towards us and that most precious gift of Jesus and Your mercy towards us and long-suffering. Oh, Lord, I'm amazed at the long-suffering that You've shown to me. And I pray that uh, it may continue, that You will give Your grace, send the Holy Spirit to be in each heart, that we may win the battle each and every moment of each day and bring glory to Thy name. Father, we lift up before You... Those who are on our prayer lists, those who are ill, we think of Susan. Uh, We pray that you be very near to her. Uh, She has been progressing in in, uh, her health reform, and we praise you, Lord, for that, and for these truths about how to treat our body temple. Uh, We also lift up uh, this hairdresser of Betty's. We pray that you be very near her and her family. And if she's not Christian, Father, we pray that this is an opportunity, That sad though it may be, that she may come to know the truth and know Jesus personally, as well as her family. Father, we pray that you will forgive each one of us our sins and our transgressions and even our iniquities. We pray that you be very near to to us in our hearts and may we come to detest sin so much that we choose never to do it ever again. And Father, I pray that you give me the words to speak this morning. This is an awesome... uh, an awesome subject, and we need to understand it rightly. So I pray for the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us this morning as we take a look at this this subject. Uh, may we have the right understanding and, and uh, be grounded in the truth and share this truth with others. We thank you so much for Jesus and for hearing this prayer, for it is indeed asked in His name. Amen. <clears throat> amen and Amen. The topic, friends, of sin is not a popular one. Uh, many today view the concept of sin as archaic. Um, you know, we need to progress past those old archaic things. Uh, they look at it as demeaning, you know, something that needs to be cast aside in light of you know, current modern thought. You know, And especially um, considering the existing hedonistic culture we live in. They, they don't want to hear anything about sin. Most Christians, however, know that there are some things taught in God's Word which will never become outdated or obsolete. The Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And praise Him for that. But sin is one such topic that is as relevant today as it was at its beginning on this earth over 6000 years ago. Now some may ask, you know, Pastor Joel, why are you preaching about such a divisive subject that that may offend those in our culture today? You know, with the world in such turmoil and such hate being expressed daily, we need messages of love and not messages that offend such as Warnings about sin. Preach love to us. Put away anything that may hint of condemnation. Doesn't that sound like our world today? Well, friends, I would like nothing better than to share with you everything about the love of God, and I promise you, I will make this promise with you right now, that if you hang in there with me, you'll see that this series of studies about sin is really about God's love for all humanity. It's true, isn't it, that unless one knows of their physical illness or disease, one cannot be healed. What is true for the physical is also true of the spiritual. Paul states in Romans 3 and verse 23, he said, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, He says, for the wages of sin is what? Is death. And in Ezekiel 18.4, it says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And from our previous studies, we know that the Bible is speaking in these references about the second death in the lake of fire, which consumes the sinner completely, turning them into ashes, never to exist at all anymore for all eternity. Friends, blotted out forever and you can read Malachi 4 for that, read Revelation 20. So let's think about this. If all have sinned, and this is what Paul said, for all have sinned, and in the Greek, its meaning is more in line with the continuance of sin, of continual falling. Uh, So if all continually fall, and the end result of sin is eternal death, and if we want to stop sinning so that we can receive eternal life, well, we better be sure that we know exactly what sin is. Don't you agree? Let me share this with you. This is from uh, the Spirit of Prophecy, volume 3, page 392. She says, The messengers of Christ must sound the note of warning to the world, teaching the transgressors of the law what is sin, and pointing them to Jesus Christ as his great and only remedy. So we are to sound the note of warning to the world and teach transgressors of the law what sin is. And if we are to do that, we better understand what sin is ourselves. We have a duty as followers of Jesus Christ to warn the world of its course toward eternal death. So the people who choose to accept the warning may be saved. And if that's not what love really is, friends, I truly don't know and probably never will. So in this study that I've entitled, What is Sin? We'll look at the biblical definition of sin and explain its different aspects. And by the end of this series on the sin issue, I've entitled the sin issue, I hope and pray that all will know what exactly sin is where it begins and how to overcome it through Christ so that we all may meet together, beloved, on the sea of glass when Jesus returns. You know, being granted eternal life because we've learned what sin is and we've decided that through the grace of God, never to fall short again, ever. Now, when trying to define sin, we find there is only one definition given in God's Word. Now, there are other scriptures that explain sin. Okay? And we'll get to some of those. They explain sin. But this one verse defines it very clearly. And it's found in 1 John 3 and verse 4. 1 John 3 verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. You've all heard that before, haven't you? Let me share this. Quote with you. It's from the Bible Echo, from November fifth, eighteen ninety four. But then the question is, after what? Level? We'll get there. I'm just, I'm just yeah, you're thinking. You're thinking. We'll get there in just a moment. Let me share this with you. Yeah. Bible Echo, November fifth, eighteen ninety four. There are many ideas in the world as to what is sin. The deist says that sin is dishonesty, a lack of patriotism honor, and manliness. Those who have little idea as to what constitutes religion will tell you that sin is murder, adultery, robbery, and crime. But what does the Word of God define it to be? John writes, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. Notice what she says here. She says, Without the law, we have no knowledge of what sin is. So, sin is the transgression of the law. And that is the sole Bible definition for sin. Now, there are a lot of ministers that will cite other scriptures, and in fact, I'm going to cite some myself. Um, but they say, uh, these, these scriptures, they say is that's what sin is. See, But I'll tell you that they all rely upon this one definition that you find in 1 John 3 and verse 4. You see, God wanted to be very specific with us as to what sin is, so so that its definition would not be diluted over time or uh, reasoned away by those who wish to, you know, wear the outward robe, but not the inward robe of Christ's righteousness. You see, friends, the devil will use other scriptures in an effort to define sin as having nothing to do with the law of God. I see it. I see what these ministers say from the pulpit that the law was done away with. Well, how can they even remotely define what sin is? They throw 1 John 3, 4 out the window. See? And I will tell you, any minister that defines sin other than the transgression of God's law is being used as a tool of the devil. Plain and simple. And he doesn't even know it. Let me share this with you again from the Bible Echo, only this time June 11th, 1894. Christ is not the minister of sin. What, And what is sin? The only definition, see what she says? The only definition given in God's word is sin is the transgression of the law. And the Apostle Paul declares, where no law is, there is no Transgression. The law is the great standard that will measure every man's character. That's why I speak a lot about our characters. And matching up our character through the grace of God with Jesus. Who is our example in all things. Now some may ask, and it was asked just a moment ago, What law is the apostle speaking about? And I could spend several hours answering that question, but John states that sin is the disregard of the law. That is the law of God. You see, when you get into the Greek here, he links the two Greek words anomia and harmatia. And by doing that, he emphasizes a close connection between sin and lawlessness. So basically, John's saying that all sin is lawlessness, And all lawlessness is sin. The law that he's referring to is God's great moral law, the Ten Commandments. That's what the Greek is pointing towards. And we know from from our studies, previous studies, the law of God is an actual transcript of the character of God. And Jesus came to reveal to us the character of his Father. So he is therefore the law amplified and demonstrated to humanity. And if men wish to order their lives in harmony with the law of God, who do they look to? They must look to Jesus. right? And they must copy his life. Because he is the law. Let's go back to the Bible Echo. This time February 8, 1897. She says the law and the gospel cannot... Be separated. Cannot be separated. That's what most of Christendom is trying to do today. They're trying to separate it. But it cannot be separated, she says. In Christ, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The gospel has not ignored the obligations due to God by man. The gospel is the law unfolded. Nothing more nor less. It gives no more latitude to sin than does the law. The law points to Christ. Christ points to the law. The gospel calls men to repentance. Repentance of what? That was my question earlier. These ministers stand in the pulpit today and on one hand say the law has been done away with and then they call people to repentance. Repentance of what? If there is no law, there is no sin. And this is what she's saying here. Repentance of what? Of sin. And what is sin? It is the transgression of the law. Therefore, the gospel calls men from their transgression back to obedience to the law of God. Jesus, in his life and death, taught the strictest obedience. He died, the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, that the honor of God's law might be preserved and yet man not utterly perish. That is an incredible, incredible thing to think about. He died, the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, that the honor of God's law might be preserved, and yet man not utterly perish. It's remarkable. Now, I want to spend some time Looking at three words the Lord gives that express three different phases of sin, because I think this will help us to to understand our true condition uh, before God, and the need of His mercy, and the need of His long-suffering, and His forgiveness. Um, And this is where some make their mistake in defining sin, I believe, at least in my experience. They'll use one phase to define all sin when there are three phases of sin, uh, three phases or maybe say degrees of transgressing God's law. Just like there, think of this, if you're familiar with the sanctuary that's talked about in the Old Testament, there were three parts to the sanctuary, right? There was the courtyard, there was the holy place, and there was the most holy place, which represents, among other things, Forgiveness in the courtyard, justification in the holy place, and sanctification in the most holy place. And these three phases of sin, I'm talking about, can be seen in the sanctuary symbols as well. Specifically in the different phases of offerings for sin. You had offerings for iniquities, you had trespass offerings, and you had offerings for sin. And I'll get to that in a little bit better detail in a minute. Now, some might ask, you know, if they, they're a surface reader and you're reading through and you kind of scratch your head and you say, Well, sin is sin, so why are there offerings for iniquities? Or why is it what's a trespass offering? What's a, a sin offering? You see, it can become confusing, can't it? Now, sin is outlined in the three words that the Lord uses in giving His name that we find in Exodus 34. So let's go to Exodus 34. I want to read verses 5 to 7 here. This is when the Lord came to Moses. It says there, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed what? The name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, notice this, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Huh? That That's Exodus 20. Oh. Well, I thought that was the same verse. It sounded like well, it. Well, he's repeating himself, isn't he? But notice what the Lord said in verse 7. He said what? Forgiving what? Iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, why did God not just say sin? Why did he not just say, you know, forgiving sin? Why did he say these three words? It's because these three words express different phases of sin. Like those offerings I just mentioned a moment ago. There are three different kinds. Now let's put on our thinking caps. And use the mind that God has given us to grasp the truth as to each one of these words. And I guarantee that the Holy Spirit will enlighten our understanding of this because a major part of His ministry is to lead us into the truth so we may be free of the wages of sin. Amen? The Lord said in verse 7, Iniquity and transgression and sin. Iniquity is a thing done with evil intent. Transgression means to, to pass over the bounds, to go out of the way, and it may be done without evil intent, see? Sin signifies in a true idea to miss the mark. Have you ever heard that? Sin is the missed mark. That is, you aim right at the mark. You do your best to hit the mark. And I'm talking your absolute best to hit the mark. And yet you miss it, but you don't miss it to the left. You don't miss it to the right. You don't overshoot it. You miss it by coming short of it. That's important. Okay? And this is the root idea in the, the original word defining sin. And at times it can also mean done ignorantly. You've done it in ignorance. See? So let's look at these words one by one and and consider them against the original idea of sin, beginning with that phase that God called in Exodus 34-7, sin. Remember, he said, iniquities, trespasses, and sin. Let's begin with sin. There There is really no human language that has any word of its own that originally expresses the idea which we have in the word sin. Now, when the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, he had to teach them about sin. Their minds were so darkened that they had lost all the true ideas that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had from the Lord on this subject. Remember, they were in Egypt for over 400 years. And the Lord had to begin with them Uh, basically from scratch, like a a blank piece of paper, (laughs) and and, and teach them what he meant when he told them that they had sinned. In order to do this, he had to select a word in their language in which he could instill this idea, and by which would be conveyed to their minds his thought and definition of sin. Now, if you think about it, consider how difficult it must be uh, for all... This all-knowing Creator God to speak to fallen human beings in such a way that they'll understand—that's—that's got to be hard. Well, I know there's nothing hard for God, but well, from our perspective, that's got to be really tough. Like, Trying to talk to somebody who speaks a different language than us. Yeah, and this is why we see some things repeated over and over in the Bible. And yes, friends, we really are that dense. And in need of the Spirit of God to teach us His way, like very small children, or like Deb just said, like we don't know a foreign language, and they're trying to teach us what they mean. Now, in those days of Israel, they used bow, bows and arrows. That's what they used to shoot with. And they practiced by shooting at a mark on a target. And when one had aimed at the mark the very best that he could do, and then released his arrow with the strongest impulse that he was capable of, and yet missed the mark by his arrow falling short of that mark, those standing by uh, those targets to tell the result of his attempt announced it by the word, which in Hebrew signified to miss the mark by coming short of it. Now that particular word in Hebrew was the word chosen by the Lord through which he would convey to their minds what he meant when he said, you have sinned. You've aimed to do the right thing, you did your best, but you came short. That shortcoming is what I mean when I tell you, you have sinned. Just as when you aimed at your mark, you did your best to hit it with the arrow, you missed it by coming short. By the continual training which God gave to the Hebrew people, he had built them up to where they had a clear conception of this true idea of sin. But there came a time when the gospel, the truth of God, must be preached to all nations outside of Israel, to the Gentiles. At that time, the Greek language, like all others, really had no word expressing appropriately God's idea of sin. Therefore, the Lord had to choose in that language a word by which he, he could convey to the people who thought in that language what he means when he says, you've sinned. And he chose in the Greek language the identical word which corresponds to the one that he had chosen in the Hebrew which signifies to miss the mark and use that word to communicate to the world what sin is. So when God had to choose in these two languages, and by the way, these are two... <laughs> it's its its something to really contemplate. These are two of the most descriptive languages that we have on this planet. And yet God couldn't find the exact words in those languages to describe what he meant by you have sinned. So when he chose, in these two languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, a word by which to convey his thought of what sin is, and in both languages he chose the same word, which means to miss the mark by coming short, well, friends, it shows us plainly what he means by the word sin, as plainly as we can understand it. And this is how it's expressed by Paul in Romans 3.23. All have sinned and come short. This is why Paul says it that way. And come short of the glory of God. These are simply two expressions, the Hebrew and the Greek, for the same thing. The come short is the explanation of the word sinned. So put that in your mind as we go on here. Now when you and I know the the thing that is the right thing to do, as we, we know it by the word of God, And with good intent, we aim to do that right thing. We aim to hit the mark on that target. And you also know that we come short of it, don't we? Because every action must be perfect to be acceptable by God. You know that the very best that we could ever possibly do in that direction of hitting the mark would come short of it. And you know that everything that was ever done by anybody except the Lord Jesus Christ has come short in just that same way. They've missed the mark. And so, it is sin. And that's what Paul's saying. All have sinned and come short. And this is why it is that our very best efforts need uh, uh, to actually be displaced by the merit of Jesus Christ, by His righteousness, which merit becomes our own by faith. Before We can be accepted by our Father in heaven. Thus, in all our actions, we must be justified by faith. And the only righteousness that will avail on our behalf is the righteousness that is by faith of Jesus Christ. Praise God for Jesus Christ. As every action of ours comes short of that perfect standard of the law of God, and as every such shortcoming misses the mark, it is sin. Because the root idea of sin is just that, to miss the mark by coming short. Don't forget, we're aiming at the mark. We're not missing it to the left, we're not missing it to the right, we're not overshooting it, we're coming short of it. That's important to understand. Because there's another phase of this falling short of the mark. Our view of the mark on the target, maybe it's become obscure. Maybe we need glasses, and it's become obscure. And in our efforts to hit the mark, we may have stumbled. We may have passed out of bounds. We may have crossed over the boundary of right into the field of wrong. And so, in that particular case, we have transgressed. You see? Yet bear in mind that this transgression is not distinct from sin, it's only an extension of the idea of sin, a carrying further the coming short of the mark. This is also sin, though it's a phase of sin further off than the former one. It's, it is out of the right line and gone out of bounds. The next God uses, in Exodus 34, 7 there, was the word iniquity. And it is further off the mark than transgressed. And it's not simply passing out of bounds into the field of wrong by some error of judgment or stumbling. It's doing of wrong, knowing it to be wrong, and intending to do it though we know it to be wrong. This is what is called iniquity. It's a moment of outright rebellion, evil doing. And this in turn is yet further extension of the idea of sin. It is further off from the mark than when one is aiming at the mark. And because this also misses the mark, it is sin. Yet this is a deeper phase of the original idea of coming short. Of course, the idea of sin covers all of these to the utmost, because sin is coming short of the mark, and it doesn't matter how far short, even to being directly opposite of what's right, an action may come, it is sin. Yet, taking the original, the right idea of sin, and holding fast to that, you can see how these other two words are expressive of the other two points in the different phases of that one great thought of coming short of the mark. And like I mentioned earlier, when studying the sanctuary and its services, you can see these different phases of sin and the differing offerings for sin. The sin offering was a sacrifice brought either by an individual sinner or by the congregation for sin, primarily for sin that had been committed ignorantly by the individual or the congregation. Remember, God says that he may choose to wink at those. Those sins that were done ignorantly. You didn't know that it was a sin, but technically speaking, it was sin. You missed the mark, right? But you missed it ignorantly. You didn't know it. And after consciousness of the sin, it's brought to your attention, it's been awakened in you, then you bring your offering to the Lord. Your sin offering. The trespass offering, was like the sin offering, it was a sacrifice brought by the individual sinner because of sins which he had knowingly committed, but not with an evil intent. He had stumbled. He had tripped. He had tried to hit the mark, but he came up short. He didn't shoot out of bounds. He didn't shoot over the target. It came up short. He tried to hit the mark, but fallen short and he missed the mark in his attempt. Offerings for iniquities was a sacrifice brought by the individual sinner because of the sins which he had knowingly committed with evil intent by not even trying to hit the mark, but was later moved to repent of missing the mark intentionally. Each of these offerings was a sacrifice for sin for which the penalty of guilt was paid by substitution. You see, they were brought in order that atonement might be made, and forgiveness obtained by the sins being transferred to the sacrifice. And that sacrifice represented the Messiah that was to come, Jesus Christ. When the person or the congregation brought the sacrifice, it showed that they acknowledged the authority of God's law, which had been transgressed, and that their life was forfeit because of that transgression, you see. that they were guilty and therefore deserving of death, that they desired pardon for their sin, and that this could be secured only through the death of the substitute which God had provided and ordained to death for them. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Understanding these phases of sin, do you see that it is literally true then that there is not a man on earth that sinneth not, in the original sense of coming short of the mark? Is it not true that there is not a soul on earth who, in the very best thing he ever does, does not come short of the mark? Well, of course, I hope you say yes. (laughs) And, And... And the other thing that this understanding sin correctly here shows us our need of something outside of ourselves to be acceptable to God. No matter what, we could go down to the sporting goods store, we could buy the best bow that's made by man, the best. Arrows that've been tested and tested, and try to shoot at that mark the best that we can, and no matter, it will fall short. Every time. Every time. You cannot of yourself hit that mark. So correctly understanding sin, the definition of sin, what sin is, also comes with it the the knowledge that we are in need of help to hit the mark. And that's why we confess our sins, which is simply confessing to the Lord that what we have done has come short of perfection. We have come short of hitting the true mark that God has set up. And therefore we ask Him to put the merit, the grace, of uh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which does hit the mark, in the place of our missing the mark. And so we ask Him to forgive us our debts. We ask Him to forgive us our sins. There is no way we will ever hit the mark. It will always come up short. Our flesh is sinful flesh. There is in it the tendency to wrong and only wrong. The tendency to pass over the bounds to transgress. Now the Lord Jesus, dwelling within us by His Spirit, delivers us from this power of sin that is in us and holds us back from doing what is wrong. That's why the Bible says He condemns sin in our flesh. And so He frees us from the power of sin. In the sense that we don't transgress, we don't go over the bounds, we don't sin. Again, iniquity is what? It's evil doing, it is evil or bad intent, it's open rebellion, knowing what is the right thing to do, choosing not to do that. But the fantastic thing about it is that this too, Jesus Christ abolishes in us. He takes away from us. He delivers us from and gives us a new mind, a new heart, a new spirit, a new disposition that neither wants to do evil nor even thinks of doing evil. And with the abiding Spirit of God, that Holy Spirit living in us, we commit no iniquity. And thus we're made free from all the life of sin that has bound us. We are made free from sinning by the power of Jesus Christ holding us back from transgression. We are made free from iniquity by being given another spirit, the Spirit of Christ, which loves the good and will neither do evil nor think evil. Thus it is, as John says in 1 John 3, 6, Whosoever abideth in him... Sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. And still, it's true that the best we do when aiming to do right, when aiming at perfection, which is the only standard, friends, in all that we can do, we come short. We miss the mark. And without the perfect merit of Jesus Christ to be our substitute and surety, it will happen every single time. And thus it is that, as to the root idea of sin, to miss the mark, it is literally true that there is not a man on earth that doeth good and sinneth not. We come short. And therefore we ever pray, forgive us our sins. And it is literally true that Christ completely delivers his people from this, so that indeed and in truth. They do not commit sin. Psalms 119 verse 5 says, They do no iniquity. So when God says in Exodus 34 and verse 7, Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, We can now appreciate so much the more this mercy, forgiveness, and love bestowed upon us sinners and thank Him with the utmost of our being that we serve such a one as He. Now let's consider what sin is from a little different view. You know the the definition now of sin, right? What is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law. And that's the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. Now consider what it is to transgress the law. Is it only the positive doing of something that is evil? Is it the positive doing? doing? Is it only doing something that is evil? Let that percolate in your mind a little bit. The answer is no. It is the coming short of positively doing that which is good. You see, because we're aiming at the good mark on the target. We're trying to do good, but we are coming short of it. Okay? Years ago, I remember Pastor Brooks saying one time that the Ten Commandments, the law of God, were ten promises. And that helps us in our understanding of the law. When we have the Spirit of Christ in us, the Holy Spirit lives in us, we will not have any other God before our God. You see? We will not commit adultery. We will not steal. We will not commit murder. We will keep the Sabbath. It makes the. You you look at the Ten Commandments in maybe a little bit different way as promises versus as a curse. Thou shalt not, as a commandment, see? No, they're promises. If. (laughs) Then. It is coming short of positively doing that which is good. James 2 and verse 10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. In other words, sin is the coming short of the righteousness of God, which is the law. To come short of the righteousness of God is to transgress His law. You see what I'm saying? Then whatever righteousness I may present, Whatever deeds I may do, as obedience to the law of God as it stands in His word, which in any sense at all, or to any degree at all, comes short of the righteousness of God, that is sin. It is transgression of the law. This is emphasized by the fact that both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the word that God selected by which to convey to the minds of men the root thought of what is sin, of what is transgression of the law, is the word that means to miss the mark. And to miss the mark of His righteousness by coming short of it. Think of it a little further. We've missed the mark of His character by coming short of it. In Christ, only in Christ, do we find the righteousness of God which is the keeping of the law of God. Only in Christ do we find the keeping of the law of God. Isn't that true? In Christ only do we find man reflecting the image of his maker. In Christ only we find hope that we too, with the promise of faith in his righteousness, can reflect that image perfectly like Jesus has. Let's consider, I'll give you an example. Maybe this will help you. Let's consider the description of Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke 1, verses 5 and 6. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zachariah. Of the course of Abia, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. How would you like to have the angels look at you and, and describe you as being that way? You, you're righteous before God. You walk in all the commandments and ordinances. You're blameless. Well, you know you, you can. You are looked at that way by having faith in Christ, by being a doer of His word. But let's get back to this. These two godly people, they were described as being righteous in the sight of God as they were observing His commandments and His requirements. And the obvious inference is that those who are living in consistent patterns of disobedience to God's laws are considered to be unrighteous. And those acts which are contrary to God's law are considered to be unrighteous acts. Right? That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? "...be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God." He gives us a list to give us an idea, see? Then in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, he says, "...be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers." For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And so it becomes clear then that righteousness is the same as lawlessness, excuse me, that unrighteousness is the same as lawlessness, both of which describe the concept of sin. Another verse related to these is found in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. Now the author points out that Jesus, God's Son, was exalted to a position above all others because he hated lawlessness and loved righteousness. Again, the contrast serves to define the nature of unrighteousness as lawlessness. Hebrews 1 verses 8 9. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And so when you think of this, I think maybe the whole matter can be summed up in the words that you find in James 4.17. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. In other words, you know to do good, you shoot the best that you can do with that arrow, and you come up short, that's sin. That's what James is saying. It all goes back to 1 John 3 and verse 4. You see, deliberate evasion of known duty misses the mark of unreserved submission to the will of God, and thus it is sin, it is unrighteousness, which is lawlessness. So when Paul talks about the law of God being a mirror that we look into, he's trying to teach us that the mirror shows us where we are missing the mark of God's righteousness. The mirror itself, you know, the law of God, that mirror does not have righteousness within itself, though God is righteous. <laughs> but it simply shows us that we are in need of righteousness because we missed the mark. We cannot do it of ourselves, it is an impossibility because of that choice that was made so long ago there in the Garden of Eden to disobey. And so this is why Paul says in Romans 7 and verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid! Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Paul missed the mark, you see. He says here, by lusting. The law pointed out why he missed the mark of the righteousness of God. And again, none of us can hit the mark of ourselves. Only Christ hit the mark. And by His merited favor, our Heavenly Father sees His target in the place of ours. That's what it means to be justified before God by faith. Does that make sense? That's why when God spoke of Zechariah and Elizabeth and said they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless, He saw their faith in the coming Messiah and saw that target that Jesus hit perfectly in the place of Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is from Signs of the Times, October 1st, 1894. She says, As intelligent creatures, we may know and do the will of God, or we may stubbornly refuse to submit our finite will to the will of the infinite. This responsibility that is placed upon us should fill us with a sense of awe. The requirement of God to us is Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. On these two principles hang all the law and the prophets. And it is for our present and eternal interest to have a proper understanding of the far-reaching principles of the law of God. By the law is the knowledge of sin. And sin is the transgression of the law. Sinners must know what is sin before they can have a desire to be rid of sin. It is a matter of eternal interest that we do not misconceive this vital question. When appeals are made in the pulpits of our land and sinners are invited to repent and to be converted, it is the privilege of the sinner to inquire, what is sin? This we must know. For it is at the peril of our souls that we continue in sin. The Apostle gives us light on this subject and says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And this concept, friends, of sin, that God has commun- communicated to us, it should make us forever grateful <laughs> For without such knowledge we would be doomed to eternal death. And as I contemplate these things and I see the world around us, the very sad thing is that most ministers in the Christian world today that think they are preaching love from the pulpit by ignoring sin and the law are actually doing the exact opposite. And they leave the listener in a state of condemnation, awaiting eternal damnation in the lake of fire. With themselves. I'll close with this scripture. John 9, verses 39 to 41. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth. God judges men on the basis of the light that they have received, or might have received had they put forth the effort. Let us not be judged now as being blind when it comes to what is sin. May we, through the grace of Jesus, choose never to sin again, ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your holy word. We thank you that you've given it to us who live here down at the close of time, that we may be people prepared that we may be people who recognize that no matter what we do, we will fall short, and we need a Savior. We thank You so much for providing a Savior for us in Your Son. And it is in His name that we ask forgiveness for our sins and our trespasses and our iniquities. And We pray for the Holy Spirit to come and to our hearts and minds and cleanse us from such things and renew a right spirit within us give us a mind like that of Jesus so that we may discern what is sin that we may teach others what is sin that they may see the love of Jesus in doing so we thank you Father for this holy Sabbath day where we can recognize such things by studying Your Word together and sing praises to Your name. We humbly ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.